electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Believe it or not, prudence is a virtue. I can't believe I have to say that on a financial television show. But lately, the concept of prudence, it is under attack. <laughs> Including on a sedate day like today, Dow dipped 153 points. But S&P just backslid 0.18%. NASDAQ edge just down 0.09%. Yep, tonight we need to talk about why being prudent with your money is a virtue, not a vice. I wish I didn't have to be the adult in the proverbial room, but this is what the investment world has now come to. One of the first things I ever learned in this business is that nobody ever got hurt taking a profit. I always thought that seemed like common sense. You know what? My view on it actually dates back pre-stock market. It dates to the days when I play the slots in Atlantic City with my ma. When we hit big, she'd say, come on, Jimmy, let's go out and buy a sweater. She never wanted to give a big win back to the casino, not when cashmere was on the line. And my ethos uh, is that you have to do a lot of soul searching before you go against your mother, particularly on these kinds of issues. Then when I got to Goldman Sachs, one of my bosses, Roy Zuckerberg, called me in not long after I started out because he noticed that I've been recommending some pretty aggressive ideas. He told me stocks aren't vacuum cleaners. If they break, you can't take them back. No warranty. So you got to be careful with your recommendations. That's where I got the phrase caveat emptor, buyer beware when it comes to the stock market. Finally, when I was at my old hedge fund, I learned from my trading partner, Karen Kramer, a lesson that's become a key mantra here on Mad Money. And that is that bulls make money, bears make money, but hogs, they get slaughtered. Now, that's one of the oldest lessons on the trading desk, but it always seems to come as a surprise to younger investors because they often don't realize that they are being hogs. When you trade like a hog, you tend to become somebody else's ham or bacon long before you would have expected it. You can bet with stocks. You can bet against stocks. But please, once you've made a lot of money, you take some to the bank. These are core tenets for me. 
That's why five months ago, I called in from my hospital bed at NYU Langone and said it was time to ring the register on GameStop when the stock was at 400 bucks. See, I thought that was common sense. But the meme stock guys saw it as a declaration of war against them. I just ripped out my catheter so I could have a little more focus. Remember, at the time, GameStop was up uh, more than 1,700%. Remarkable run. So I figured people should take something off the table. I didn't even think it was anything. I mean, not a lot. Put it this way. Not long before I went into surgery, it was for a burst cyst in my spinal column. I'd admonish the short sellers in GameStop for being pigs. They'd watch the video game retailer stock down there near oblivion, but they kept betting against it, assuming it'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. The shorts didn't take their gains while they had them, and they were obviously being pigs. And in January, those little piggies got slaughtered. Now, suddenly, I was saying the same thing about the bulls who'd watch their favorite stock go from the single digits to 400. Truthfully, it was one of the best calls I ever made. GameStop swiftly fell to 40 bucks less than a month later. But the GameStop's fan base from Wall Street Bets, it doesn't matter that I was correct. It's meaningless. To them, anyone who recommends selling is the enemy, which is why I've become a hated figure on Reddit's Wall Street Bets, probably the most hated person in their universe. And that's the betting sheet that ground, uh, that's ground zero for meme stock investing. According to these younger investors, or at least I assume they're younger, given that it's all anonymous, selling GameStop is just an outright sin. No matter how much money has been made, they hate those on the other side of the trade, particularly short sellers, but also baby boober guys like me who cancel people that, that take some profits because of my core tenants. In other words, my learned behavior is worthless to these people who castigate anyone who tries to help them, even when those people turn out to be right. You could have saved yourself a fortune if you sold GameStop at 400 and bought it back at 40. Now, I understand risk. It's possible to be too prudent, Uh, but I'm not against GameStop or AMC at these levels. GameStop's currently below where I told you to ring the register in January. It's now getting hammered in after hours trading. Wake up a terrific quarter. Frankly, management did so. They said they'd sell maybe another five billion shares in what's known as an at-the-money transaction. You probably won't even notice it, frankly, if you're in the stock. These companies now have the ability to reinvent themselves because higher stock prices have allowed them to raise capital. I like that. That said, if you've ridden them up from much lower levels, hey, take a little off the table. These stories could always get ding like GameStop's currently doing, even though the numbers were good. And they're bringing in a couple of really seasoned Amazon alums to run the company. I'm talking about great people. You know, there's also an SEC inquiry into the trading of the stock, but it doesn't sound all that serious to me or would have been sent to justice or they certainly would have disclosed it when the agency contacted them May 26. And it's voluntary. So I'm not worried. Suffice it to say that nothing I heard will stop the people who like it from Wall Street Bets continuing to buy the shares tomorrow morning. Now, let's look at yesterday's meme stock, though, for a second, Wendy's. I've liked that stock for ages. I like eating. Never more important, I like the breakfast initiative well ahead of plan, and they just expanded the United Kingdom. I like that they're continuing to prove the taste, especially with my wife's favorite, the Baconator. Yesterday, Wendy's stock went from 23 to 29. Now, I agree with Nelson Peltz, the chairman and major shareholder, who told me today he says the stock's still undervalued. But if I told you, uh, let's say, uh, last night to buy Wendy's at 29, okay, after it had been hyped by the website, and then it went to 25 as it did today, I'd feel terrible. Maybe in the world of Wall Street bets, I'd be applauded for liking the stock at any price, but I suspect somehow many of you would castigate me in this audience. Again, I'm not against risk. I think part of your portfolio should be speculative, what I call uh, your mad money. 
I am one of the only, I know, I'm the only talking head that I've ever seen who actively encourages speculation, especially for younger investors who have their whole lives ahead of them to make back any losses. However, the throng at Wall Street Bets often thinks that you should be all in on whatever speculative heap they're in love with at the moment. And if you see, if, and if for some reason uh, you think it's a bad idea what they're doing, well, you better shut up or be like me and get tough. To me, it's unwise. This is not a game. People need money to live, to go to school, to pay for vacations, for retirement. If you lose everything, you know what? That's a problem. Look, I'm not a total masochist, just a partial one. I have rhino skin and I welcome criticism. I'm from Philadelphia. But dogma doesn't cut it. I've been in this business for 40 years. Time and again, I've seen that bulls make money and bears make money, but hogs get slaughtered. The Wall Street Bets crew may not want to hear it. Uh, to them, I'm not another, I'm just an out-of-touch baby boom. That's all I am. But if they don't take some profits while they have them, then sometimes they think they're going to regret it. Bottom line, I can't believe I need to say this. But if you're trading stocks, the goal is actually to make money. And eventually that means you need to take some profits. Because it is prudent to preserve your gains and you don't have a profit until you take it off the table. Dave in Kansas, Dave. Hi, Jim. I wanted to know where you think Etsy's heading. I'm a seller on the site, and everything that I've earned over the last 12 months from my Etsy shop, I've plowed back into purchasing shares in the company. Is now a good time to buy more, or should I wait for a dip in the price? I wait for a dip in Etsy. The stock has had a major run. I think it's a terrific company, but it could come down without a problem. It's, uh, Josh Silverman's real good, though, so then when it does come down, I want you to buy it. Let's go to Joseph in California. Please, Joseph. Booyah, Jim. First-time caller, and I loved your books. Ah, thank you, buddy. What's sandwich up? Wars, you're welcome. In the Chicken Sandwich Wars, Tyson Foods, ticker TSN, supplies all sides. When restaurants shut down, TSN won market share by sending product into grocery stores, beat estimates every quarter, and I think they're going to beat them again. And now that they're reopening, we're, they're expanding production, opening their first right. new chicken plant in 25 years in April. And their new CEO, Donnie King, is the chicken king at Tyson Foods. And TSN just showcased new plant-based well, protein Well, I'll tell you what. Let's get Donnie King on because I've been biased against Tyson. But you know what? New regime. We bring him on. Maybe we like Tyson because I used to like it very, very much in the old days. All right. Stop trading. Patience is a virtue. Remember, bulls make money, bears make money, hogs often get slaughtered. I'm having it tonight. After two days of testimony from the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, we know cybersecurity is more important than ever. So why can't cybersecurity stocks like CrowdStrike seem to catch a break? I'm talking with the CEO of this very good company. Then I'm breaking down the not-so-stable world of stable coins and telling you why it could be time to at least stay focused on this difficult issue and why some action in the crypto market reminds former CFTC director Tim Masson of what happened during the 2008 financial crisis. Oh, you're not going to want to miss this. So, don't go against my ma and stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, take to get some of these great cybersecurity stocks to get their groove back. Take CrowdStrike. Last week, this cloud-based cybersecurity player reported an incredible quarter. I was on vacation, but I still looked it up, believe me. I mean, I thought it would go up big, right? I mean, the stock hasn't gotten much traction beyond the initial eight-point bounce. Now, look, I accept the fact that there's a rotation out there, fast-growing secular growth stocks being sold. Wall Street prefers the reopening place. But at some point, this is ridiculous. We know cybersecurity is a huge issue. We've just had two days of testimony from the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, who got dragged in front of Congress for leaving an essential piece of infrastructure vulnerable to a ransomware attack. We've had terrific interchanges with Palo Alto Networks, which you know is so important. And now CrowdStrike in particular is doing so well. In the latest quarter, they gave us a strong top and bottom line beat, 74% annual recurring revenue growth. That's astounding, by the way. Even better, management raised their four-year forecast. So could this stock make another run toward its February highs? I think this group is amazing. Let's check in with George Kurtz. He's the co-founder, president, and CEO of CrowdStrike. Get a better read on the quarter and where his company's head. Mr. Kurtz, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. All right, so George, I mean, you, you waste no time in your, uh, in your conference call. You say, at the same time, ransomware as a service sites. Now we know software as a service, ransomware as a service. You're talking about, of course, criminal activity. And you are saying that even novice e-criminals can run successful lucrative campaigns. Tell me, one, how is that possible? And two, why aren't people hiring CrowdStrike to stop it? Well, Jim, you know about the subscription economy that certainly has moved to the uh, to the bad guys. Um, they've taken it to a new level. Uh, ransomware as a service, uh, you don't really have to know that much. They create the software packages. They create the, the way to exploit them. They offer it as a service. And they even get a profit cut based upon the amount of ransom that you actually get back. So it's a very fluid and dynamic market. And as you've seen, there's tremendous impact beyond just the financial piece, but 
the business resiliency element, pipelines and meatpacking pants actually being impacted. And we do have a lot of customers, obviously, that are using CrowdStrike to protect themselves against this. And that certainly uh, is an area of focus for us, um, you know, being able to pre- prevent against ransomware and these sort of attacks. And that's why we built CrowdStrike. Well, is this like one of those situations where uh, a bad guy goes into a parking lot and he sees one car and it's all the all the buttons are down? He sees another with them up. He says, I'm not going to the ones where the buttons are down. I'm going into the ones where the doors are open. I mean, and you are the ones with the buttons down. Well, that's certainly true in some cases, but um, what we've seen, and, and we've talked about this a few years ahead of whenever you know this really broke, is this this movement towards enterprise ransomware. And you know, years ago, not that many years ago, I should say, it was uh, you know phishing email, and you pay your three hundred dollars in Bitcoin and you move on. But now the adversaries are are taking a page out of nation state actors. They're actually getting in. They're staging their ransomware. They're deploying it using things like Microsoft technology to actually deploy it, which is just normal systems management uh, software, activating it and then creating a a ransom for the uh, the company. So it's become a big game hunting as opposed to just traditional ransomware. But this is organized crime and you've got the tools to stop it. Well, we've built CrowdStrike using AI, using the power of the cloud, uh, collecting over five trillion uh, signals per week so that we could identify these attacks and we could stop them. And there's a reason why our customers are delighted with CrowdStrike. There's a reason why we're uh, so far to the right in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. Uh, The reason why we're number one in IDC modern endpoint is because the technology just works and it's easy to deploy and it has tremendous value for our customers. All right. So let's talk about this Fortune 150 customer that you've got. The customer's trying to deploy Microsoft Defender for over a year. They found themselves frustrated. Why? With complexity, uh, cumbersome agents and resulting in less than one third of their endpoints protected. So in other words, I mean, this is a major company offering a product that doesn't protect. Well, and that's what we've seen, Jim, is that a lot of companies are reluctant to buy from their OS manufacturer. They're busy building OSs and Word documents and, you know, productivity apps and those all those sort of things, if you will. Um, And they're looking for a company that specializes in security and has a single agent, single console and is built from the ground up. And Microsoft Technologies, legacy technology they bought in 2004, signature-based, multiple consoles. And one of the things is it actually gives you different levels of protection depending on the operating system versions because they're dependent on the operating system to add capabilities to it. So that customer got frustrated, didn't have a good deployment, went to CrowdStrike, seamless deployment, they're up and running and protected. How many people have the uh, system that Colonial Pipeline has? Well, um, when you say system, I mean, there's a lot of uh, colonial pipelines out there. There's a lot of old technology. Uh, OT environments are uh, typically brittle because they use old machines. We've seen Windows 95 in use in some of these environments. And, um, you know, they become harder and harder to protect. Well, the reason I'm asked that is because in the conference call, it seems like there's some people who are questioning whether how many real clients are left. And you in the conference call, blow that up, say, well, it's not double what we have. There's thousands and thousands of people who need CrowdStrike right now. It's an, it could be 10 times the number of customers that you currently have. Absolutely. We're over 11,000 customers, and we're super proud of our growth on the customer count. But in the grand scheme of customers, that's a tiny fraction. 
If you look at uh, some of our other competitors, the legacy competitors over the years, they've had hundreds of thousands of customers. When you think about all the small businesses, all the large enterprises, um, there isn't anyone in this world who doesn't need cybersecurity. Big or small, uh, you're going to need it because the threats are out there. We've seen the impact, and everyone needs to protect themselves. One last question. What would happen if the government said, all right, no one's allowed to pay pay ransomware. If they do, we're going to prosecute you. Would that stop it? I don't think it's going to stop it because uh, they're just going to find another way to get paid. Um, these folks behind ransomware and these sort of attacks, it's a very well-organized, well-funded business. They have HR departments. They've got tech support. Oh, they've got multi-language support. They're, they're going to find a way to get paid. And, uh, you know, it's our job to be able to protect our customers and, and keep one step ahead of them. All right. Thank you for giving us a dose of reality. I think people just feel like that it's one off or some weird government. Some uh-uh. They got HR departments. Well, good for them. And maybe they're treating their people well while they rip our country off. George Kurtz, CrowdStrike co-founder and CEO. Thank you so much for telling truth on Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Well, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm kind of stunned. Boy, the bad guys are real bad, aren't they? George Kurtz, CrowdStrike co-founder and CEO. Mad Money's back here for the break. Coming up, got crypto stuck in your craw? Don't make a move until you hear Kramer's take on one of the most critical crypto caveats out there. Next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. Everyone's talking about cryptocurrency. Got a whole show tomorrow devoted to it. Well, we got to talk more about it. See, because it's finally gotten so big that we need to start caring about the whole crypto ecosystem, not just whether it's Ethereum or you like Bitcoin. See, there's just too much money involved to ignore any potential vulnerabilities. Right now, we've got some very smart people pointing to a major weakness in the system. I'm talking about so-called stable coins, the largest of which is something called Tether. These stable coins are pegged to traditional non-digital assets. You know, we might think the U.S. dollar, uh, bonds, gold. Uh, Tether's grown to become the third largest cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin and Ethereum, and it's got a market cap of more than $60 billion, with a B. Why do we care about this thing? Because Tether's now a key source of liquidity for the entire cryptocurrency ecosystem. The irony of crypto is that most of these things are too volatile to use as currencies. Bitcoin was up about 10 percent today, which is great if you own it as a speculative asset, something I've recommended to you repeatedly. But that's kind of swing is terrible if you want to use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And that's where these stable coins like Tether come in. Tether's more or less pegged to the dollar, emphasis on more or less. So you see lots of people trading between Tether and Bitcoin or Ethereum, then using Tether to conduct actual transactions, often very leveraged. In the last 24 hours, Tether accounted for roughly 14% of all Bitcoin trading volume and nearly 16% of all Ethereum trading volume. Think of it as the biggest link between the crypto economy and the real economy. 
Now, though, incredibly thoughtful people, I'm talking about people like Timothy Massett, the former head of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the guy who oversaw the Troubled Asset Relief Program during the Great Recession, are pointing out that there could be some serious flaws in the system. He's concerned about Tether. More on that later when we actually speak to him, and it's going to be right after the break. And the company behind Tether, which is also named Tether, has been banned from doing business in New York by the state attorney general. That's a pretty draconian penalty, given that New York is the home of Wall Street, don't you think? You know what that means? Get that closer look. Now, before I get into the weeds, let me be clear. I am a huge believer and supporter of crypto. I think it is a good idea to put 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin or Ethereum. I think stable coins are a terrific idea. I have a portfolio of crypto. I'm not trying to attack crypto here. It's the opposite. I want a healthy crypto ecosystem, in part because of your investments and mine. So if there really is a problem with Tether, it needs to be addressed. Maybe it needs to be rooted out. Maybe transparency would make it so we're fine. So let's go over the issues. I told you Tether's the link between the crypto economy and the real economy. Some experts are worried it's a weak link. The whole point of Tether is that it's supposed to be backed by real assets. Originally, the company uh, behind the thing said, I'm going to use a lot of quotes here because i got to get this right, Tether's currency is 100% backed by actual assets in our reserve account and can be viewed and verified in real time, end quote. Then in 2017, they started saying, quote, every Tether is always backed one-to-one by traditional currency held in our reserves. End quote. The idea was that these were like digital dollars. You could move around even faster than regular currency. It's faster than a wire transfer. However, in early 2019, Tether changed the language on its website. Quote, every Tether is always 100 percent backed by our reserves, which include traditional currency and cash equivalents. And from time to time may include other assets and receivables from loans made by Tether to third parties, which may include affiliated entities. End quote. Now, while Tether still pegged one to one to the dollar, suddenly you have to wonder if that peg could be in jeopardy. A few months later, the New York attorney general, no slouch, noticed that new language, started coming after Tether, along with Bifinex, which is this uh, cryptocurrency exchange that's run by all the same people. These prosecutors alleged that Tether and Bifinex had commingled funds. Basically, Bifinex lost money, so it borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars from Tether's cash reserves. Less than ideal. As part of the initial court proceedings, Tether's general counsel revealed that their stablecoin was only 74% backed by cash and equivalents. So Tether's not just sitting on a big pile of currency. It's also got loans and securities and all that stuff. And that makes it more risky. At this point, nearly half of their assets are in commercial paper, short-term, unsecured corporate debt. Now, we don't know which corporations, and even though Tether is gigantic, we don't hear much about them playing in our very liquid commercial paper market, which is curious. If at some point the economy goes into a tailspin, some of these corporations default all their obligations, Tether might not be able to maintain that one-to-one peg to the U.S. dollar. A little extreme, but I've got more. Now, earlier this year, Tether settled its case with the New York Attorney General, and this has become a major point of controversy. Tether and supporters argue that it, they didn't do anything wrong. Well, they didn't admit wrongdoing. It's true. They only got an $18.5 million, million slap on the wrist. That's not much. But they also got barred from trading with people in the state of New York. And when you go through the settlement, there is some wild stuff in here. First of all, the settlement agreement says that Tether misrepresented the status of its reserves from late 2018 through 2019. Misrepresented. When they changed the language on their website, their sister company, this B-I-T-F-I-N-E-X, lost $850 million to a Panamanian shadow bank. So they borrowed a fortune from Tether 
Remember, both companies have the same CFO. And for a while, Tether's coin was partially backed by that loan, although it's since been paid back. Tether also agreed to start disclosing its reserves on a quarterly basis. We got those numbers last month. But all they gave you was this one-page document with two pie charts. Left, out, left more questions, frankly, than answers. Turns out only 3.9% of Tether's reserves are in actual cash, even if you want to be more generous by including treasury bills and refers, reverse repo notes. It's still only a little more than 10%. Just under 50% is commercial paper. Again, don't know the names. Given the size of Tether, that makes them one of the largest holders of commercial paper in the world, but why? Uh, how about the names? There's nothing wrong with a stable coin backed by short-term corporate debt, but we need to know whose debt we're dealing with. According to Tether, the vast majority of its commercial papers rated A2 or above. I'd rather, much rather have some actual numbers and the real issuers. Why not? If they're all A2, what do we have to worry about? Don't just give us the breakdown. Tell us who they are. Now, Tether also brought in an accounting firm, the Cayman Islands, I've been to Cayman Islands, they're beautiful, to issue an assurance opinion that gave them a clean bill of health. But that's not the same as a real audit. So how stable is Tether? Honestly, I don't know. That's kind of the problem, isn't it? Tether's become a pillar of the crypto economy. Not only does it make up a huge percentage of Bitcoin and Ethereum trades, it's also frequently used as collateral for leverage trading. That's right. And there's a ton of leverage in the crypto system, Uh, sometimes 100 to 1 leverage. So if there's ever a problem with Tether's reserves, you could see a massive unwinding event instantly. And there are no regulators who could step in to mitigate the damage. It's not like it's run by the Treasury Department or the Fed. Of course, this is a low probability event, but it's, it's not changing my belief in crypto. I'm in there both for speculation as a hedge against inflation. You would most likely only see a real run on Tether if the Chinese shut down their crypto shadow economy. Could happen. Or if there's a huge downturn in the economy jeopardizing some of that commercial paper, or if some further government investigation reveals things that the New York Attorney General somehow couldn't dig up in two years. But given the importance of Tether to the rapidly growing crypto economy, we need more transparency here, especially because I am worried about China. Tether, why not just open the kimono, agree to be audited by a traditional U.S. accounting firm, make us not worried if China shuts down their market. Bottom line, when you get past all the complex terminology, this is a pretty simple issue. Either Tether's reserves are legitimate, liquid, and stable, or they're not. That wouldn't be in question if we had more insight into what they're actually holding. That's why I'm begging them for more transparency so we can put this whole thing to bed and erase what some very smart pro-crypto people fear is the weakest unregulated link and otherwise very strong but unregulated chain. Total transparency takes the biggest worry to the crypto world I love off the table, provided that what it shows is as legitimate as Tether says it is. After all, if it is, why don't you show us when we come back more on the curious case of a gigantic unregulated financial company that is so key to the crypto world as seen by Tim Massett. Let's take some questions. Let's go to Alex in Maryland. Alex. Jim, pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. And I'm sorry, glad you're on the show. Great show, great investor tips. Thank you. Talking about Marathon Digital, ticker symbol M-A-R-A. Let me give you some facts. When Bitcoin was $19,000, Mara was trading above $40. It's now trading around $26 with good liquidity, about 15 million trading shares per day. Mara recently spent some profits to increase mining power to 10.4 EH. Layman terms, they're going from 30,000 miners to 100,000 miner machines. By the time all miners are operational, they'll be mining about 60 Bitcoin a day at the expense of $5,000. They've also locked in a contract with an electrical company to limit power costs. 
Assets include over 5,500 Bitcoins, obviously assuming Bitcoin staying at current rates about $35,000 or higher. Okay. With well, okay, look, I mean, that sounds like an interesting spec on Bitcoin. I mean, to me, if I want to take that, look, it's an interesting spec on Bitcoin. I'm, I'm not going to say more than that because I don't know the company. I mean, to me, if I want to know uh, mining of Bitcoin, then it's a small part of NVIDIA because they have Ethereum mining cards. And, but uh, maybe I'm too conservative for you. But look, I certainly bless that if someone wants a play on crypto mining. Hey, I like Barrick. That's a play on gold mining. All right, maybe a little disingenuous there. All right, two things are very certain. Tether has become a pillar of the crypto economy and the legitimacy of its reserves, let's call them unclear and suboptimal. We need more transparency from them. Now, much more mad money head. My conversation about stablecoins doesn't end here. I'm taking a closer look at the weakest link in the crypto chain with former CFTC director Tim Massett. Then, what should you do with the anecdotal evidence in this market? I'm going to give you my take. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Just before the break, I gave that primer on what many people consider to be the biggest risk to the crypto economy. The concerns about Tether and also some other so-called stable coins that are more or less pegged to real-world assets. But this is a thorny two-sided issue, though. So I want to dig deeper with Timothy Massett. He's the former chairman of the Commodities Future Trading Commission and the man who oversaw the troubled asset relief program at the Treasury Department during the financial crisis. He's now a research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Last week, Massett published a piece arguing that if there's some kind of shock, these stable coins might experience a crisis akin to what happened when a major money market fund broke the buck, so to speak, in 2008 because they owned a bunch of Lehman Brothers paper that suddenly became near worthless. Back then, the Treasury Department saved the day by backstopping everything. Now, I, I got to tell you, I don't see them doing that for cryptocurrency. Because this topic is too important to ignore and because I like cryptocurrency so much, let's take a closer look with Tim Massen to get his read on the Tether situation. Mr. Massen, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, Tim. You know, I I like crypto so much. And when I started reading about this, Tether, I said, wow, I got to go to to a man who knows more than I do to find out whether the risk is real and how it could really hurt people's, let's say, uh, holdings in, in, in crypto, but more importantly, the world of crypto and whether it's stable enough because of Tether. Right. Well, you know, Tether has become very important in the plumbing of the crypto markets, you know, and it's grown to a $60 billion market cap. Look, you know, some people think all of crypto is like gambling, right? And I wouldn't say that, but in that analogy, Tether's kind of like the chips you get, you know, when you go to the cashier and it makes it a lot easier to move from game to game. And, you know, uh, you don't you don't keep cashing in and out of dollars. You just move your value around through Tether. But the problem is what Tether is doing with the money that you use to purchase the coins. And we now have a little bit of disclosure about that. And while in one way you could think of it like a money market fund, one token equals $1, it's supposed to be invested in very stable things. In fact, you know, they're investing in stuff that it's not clear whether they could really liquidate it quickly and liquidate it at full value. So, you know, as long as a lot of people aren't demanding their money back, there's not an issue. 
But if suddenly a lot of people did, I'm concerned there would be an issue. Now, when I when I get the statements from the very nice people, Tether, they tell me, look, we've got much more transparency. You realize we've changed a lot. But then I read that New York, uh, the AG settlement. Yeah. And they basically got, got kicked out of, of Wall Street, of New York. And yes. to me, Tim, that's highly unusual. And you went to law school with me. We don't, if New York decides you can't do, work, do business here, shouldn't we be more worried than most people are about this thing? I, I think we should be. And, you know, some people might say, oh, well, the AG didn't, didn't impose that big a fine. And that's true. But the important thing is the AG required some disclosure. And now when you look at that disclosure, that's when you get concerned. Um, you know, 13% of their assets, this is 13% of $60 billion, is invested in secured loans. We have no idea what kind of loans those are or who they're to. Now, they claim 50% is in commercial paper. That's a lot of commercial paper. But, you know, I've talked to a couple of people who are involved in trading commercial paper. They're not sure they see Tether in the markets. So I don't know what commercial paper Tether is buying. Uh, but, you know, it's all a concern. So I think we need more disclosure here. Now, one of the things I think people are going to say is, who cares? I mean, this thing's not that big. Tim, I got to tell you, when I first heard this, I was shocked at how big Tether is. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. I mean, and a lot of people would say, oh, crypto, you know, it's, it's let the buyer beware. It's caveat emptor. I don't take that view. First of all, you know, I think integrity in our financial markets is important, number one. Number two, you never know the linkages. And increasingly, the crypto world is more and more connected to the mainstream financial sector. And Tether really is kind of tied into our payment system, if you will. It's a, it's a digital dollar in many ways. So I think we do need to be concerned. And I think, you know, we need a better framework of regulation for Tether and other stable coins. And that could be like a money market fund where, you know, you can only claim it's a stable coin if you invest the money in highly high quality liquid assets. It could be bringing it within the banking sector where it, uh, it has to be issued with a bank and the bank has to have it backed by deposits. You could even say those deposits have to be uh, parked at the Fed. Um, there are other in-between measures as well. But we need a better framework so that we can just be sure that there can't be a run on something like this. Well, Tim, what do we do? We've got a world that, we, that really doesn't want regulation because they think regulation, right. frankly, is, is not worth the prices printed on, so to speak. And then That's you've got, what, right, but you have people like you and me. I mean, I, I, I like crypto very much. When I started reading about this, I immediately called where I keep my crypto. And I said, you're not involved with Tether, are you? And they said, no. And I said, well, that's a relief to me. At the same time, there's most people who say that I'm just being ridiculous, that this is right. no chance that this could cause a risk. So, Tim, how do right. we like how do we really weigh the risks of this darn thing? Right. Well, and, you know, I think there are a lot of people holding Tether who, who very much like the fact that it's not regulated, that there's some opacity to it. You know, right. you don't know for sure what's going on, particularly because a lot of a lot of the money going into Tether is coming from overseas, perhaps from countries that have, you know, capital controls or regulatory restrictions uh, that would not allow people to do uh, what they're doing. Look, my view is always that, that in the long run, a, a sound regulatory framework is better uh, for financial markets. We've seen this movie over and over, you know, where people said, oh, not to worry, you know, uh, subprime mortgages and uh, the derivatives on those, you know, it's small, right. it's outside of the mainstream banking system. And, you know, look what happened. Um, 
I'm not saying we're due for that with crypto or with Tether. I'm just saying I think a sounder framework of regulation would be better in the long run for the development of this industry. And I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy to have people invest in crypto. I don't know where it's going, uh, but I think the technology is exciting. There could be potentially very important applications of the technology. I mean, look, we're suddenly talking about central bank digital currencies. That wouldn't have happened. But for Bitcoin, which led to things like stable coins, which is now causing, you know, central banks around the world to think about central bank digital currency. So that's all good. Financial innovation is good. But we need a good regulatory framework around. Well, let's just leave it at that, because that's exactly what I think would make everyone more comfortable with crypto. And that's what we need. I want to thank Tim Masson, former CFTC chairman and now Harvard Kennedy School Research Fellow. And yes, an old friend and classmate at Harvard Law. Tim, great to see you. Jim, great to see you. Thank you so much for thank having you. me. Thank you. Man, money's back getting great. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The chill man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! What's up, And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski that. The lightning round comes I'm going to go to Mark in Florida. Mark! Hi, Jim. It's nice to have you back. Oh, thank you, Mark. What's going on? It's a nice vacation being with the family there. What's going on? Just one quick note first. The, a woman called you yesterday and said she was calling from Dallas Cowboys country. The look on your face was priceless. Now, my question. It's an issue. CE- it's an issue. You had the CEO of Roblox on recently, and everything sounded great. I bought some, and it jumped up. But with no bad news available, it's plummeted 12.5% from its high on Friday. Should I ring the register? Hold no, on no, 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 no. I mean, there was some sort of uh, using publisher's suit here. But what matters, as I said when I was at uh, halftime with Scott with Judge, it's just a great long-term story. I-, I waffle over how expensive it is, but boy, is it a great story. Marsha in Ohio. Marsha. Hi. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Well, I got a, a stock I've had since before the pandemic, and it's done nothing. It's GPN, Global Payments Network. Yeah, what do I you don't think? know why people love payment stocks. I mean, uh, see, it's always saying that today. They all love payments. I, this is a very good company, Global Payments. I, I, I'm recommending it. it. It is a very good company. I'd be a buyer. Let's go to Steven in New York. Steven! Hey, Jim, what's going on, my brother? Uh, not much going on there, Chief. What's happening with you? I'm very blessed and excited to be here. Special shout out to you, my brother. Oh, thank you. So, I wanted to ask you about Mind Medicine. Mind Medicine. I don't know Mind Medicine. Ben Stoto, my research director, help me. Mind Medicine, we got to get on that one, I'll tell you. Let's go to Joe in New York. Joe! Hey, Jim. What's up? Good to to talk to you. Same. Uh, Joe from Brooklyn. Yes, uh, I'll see I you tonight at Bar San Miguel. We'll, uh, we'll have a uh, the chicken tinga together. It's fabulous. What's going on? <laughs> uh, I own Stryker Corporation. Stryker's an excellent <laughs> company. I like the device business very much. I happen to like Medtronic more than Stryker, but that's a good one. Now we're going to go to Nathan in Pennsylvania. Nathan. Hey, Jim. I want to start off by letting you know that you are by far the best educator I've ever had in my yeah, entire well, life. That's, that's the goal. The the that's the goal. That's Thank it. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's the goal. Must be from the east part of Pennsylvania because he knows that. What's up? Hey, so what do you think of STEM Incorporated? 
We looked into STEM. It's an energy storage company. We liked it. We thought it was pretty proprietary. Some people say, Jim, you're a little aggressive on it, but it's kind of a nice little run here. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, when it comes to your financial future, leave the anecdotes to Asa. A tip of the cap to hard data and the money it can make you. If you know how to use it. Next. In this business, we're taught that anecdotal information is worthless. But when you put enough anecdotes together, that's not just a bunch of disconnected stories. It's a data set, and it deserves to be taken seriously so that you can act on it even and buy a stock. So let me give you my anecdotes. Last night, I interviewed a legend, Bobby Kotick, who's run Activision Blizzard for 30 years. I met him 40 years ago and had him pegged as a genius immediately, but not this much of a genius. He and his team have created a series of incredible products that turn out to be more than just video games and more than just a game of war. They're a new mode of human interaction. They're a way to stay in touch with people even when you're separated by long distances. Not long after we talked about Call of Duty on air, I found my world abuzz with people wanting to tell me how they stay close with faraway friends and family members whom they would have lost touch with if not for the game. Everyone from my executive producer's husband and their son to her husband's brother and his son. My stage director tells me doing the same thing. Then I go to Bar San Miguel, my small plate Mexican restaurant in Brooklyn, which I'll be tonight. And people tell me, wait a second, they to play the game with friends or relatives who they would have long since lost touch with. I mean, this has nothing to do with COVID. I didn't know this. So I'm not a gamer. It's not my world. But when I get that many people telling me about something, it makes me think that this is more than just an ephemeral phenomena that will end when COVID ends. It's a new way to hang out with people who might be on the other side of the world. Why does this matter? Because it's a huge positive. Activision Blizzard stock has been stuck in a post-COVID rut, meaning the big institutional money managers don't want to go near it because they believe the whole gaming industry will get hammered now that people can start going out again. They think the comparisons will be too difficult. The trajectory kaput. I don't know. I, you know what? I don't, I don't buy this anymore. When so many people in my own little world talk about how they've been playing to keep in touch with their families, do you really think this is somehow going to end? Do you seriously believe that people who tasted these amazing lifelike games will say, eh, that's it, time to put down the controller, I'm going to the movies? Hey, look, as much as I like what Adam Aaron's doing at AMC to raise capital, I don't think that's going to occur. Gaming's not going anywhere, except for maybe up. Now, I had the same thing happen with RVs and motorhomes. I do a piece about RVs featuring Thor Industries yesterday, and I quickly discover a CEO I know who took an Airstream from Minneapolis to Palm Springs. He loved it. Sure, the inspiration may have been COVID, but that rental is a powerful testament to the growth of these homes on wheels. And yes, for wealthy people, it, it wouldn't matter if hotels had kept room prices stable or been able to maintain their cleanliness. I don't think they've done either. Then I learned that a close friend of mine's family is tricking out old Airstreams, marking them up, finding eager buyers. This is post-COVID people, not during lockdown. The change is for real. Yet the stock of Thor Industries, the largest player in the industry, certainly doesn't reflect this new adoption. Right now, their backlog of orders equals an entire year's worth of production. But the stock's down 36 bucks from its highs. It's crazy. 
Now, again, this could all be anecdotal. A bunch of people told me they like Call of Duty and another couple of folks tell me they like RVs. Maybe it's all meaningless. But then again, two years ago, everyone was asking me about Bitcoin. I dismissed it, thought it was meaningless. Well, that was a mistake. Good thing I decided it was empirical, at least at $12,000. I don't want you to miss the next big thing because I worried my evidence was just too anecdotal, especially when the underlying fundamentals are just so darn strong. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.